This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Everybody remembers you from last time, Moby Dick, uh, which was very exciting for all of us here in San Diego. It went well. It did. It did. It sold well. It went well. It was, did you like yeah. it? Thank you. And I find it interesting, it's almost five years later, yeah. that uh, the, the original actual story, mm-hmm. The Sinking of the Essex, mm-hmm. which Moby Dick is based on, right. uh, there's a brand new film opening this weekend yes. about that original story, Yes, which and, is kind of exciting. And the man that wrote the, the book that that movie is based on, Nathaniel Philbrick, who's a good friend of mine, when Gene Shear and I were looking for trying to figure out how we were going to write the opera Moby Dick, <laughs> uh, I, read, I met him on Nantucket, and I read that book, and that's when the whole opera came to life mm-hmm. for me. So I can't wait for the movie. It's and, a great book. Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing it Saturday yeah. morning. Yeah. You want to fly Listen, down? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get started. Um, you began, and, and, and I do want to get to the core of, okay. of uh, uh, the meat of this conversation as soon as we can, but mm-hmm. I do want to go back a little bit. Um, you began by writing songs for singers who'd come through San Francisco Opera. You were in the publicity department, is that right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> what were you doing in the publicity department? I was writing press releases. <laughs> um, I, I had always been a pianist and started right. when I was young, and then I'd injured my hand. Uh, I had always had a great affection for vocal music and for singers. I grew up in Ohio loving Barbara Streisand and Julie Andrews and Carly Simon and Joni Mitchell and James mm-hmm. Taylor and... Um, I really knew nothing about opera, and I loved musical theater because obviously that was much more accessible through movies and through television. Um, But I played the piano and went to college, and just during grad school, I developed a focal dystonia where my hand started curling into Mm. a ball, and I couldn't play the piano. Um, And I went into what I would call a fairly dark place because I also... You know, after 28 years, I suddenly I couldn't play the piano. I couldn't. I didn't want to write music. Mm. Uh, so I found that I could write about music, though, and that's when I moved to San Francisco and got the job at the San Francisco Opera, and, in the PR marketing department. <laughs> and it turned out to be the the greatest apprenticeship I could have hoped for. My job was to um, get to know every department, all the people uh, on stage, in the pit in the scenery shop, in the costumes and wigs and makeup and uh, props, uh, the administration, every part of it, and to write stories to send out to the public and to tell the truth about what was going on in there um, and get people engaged and bring them into the opera house and also to attend every rehearsal that I could, mm. um, get to know the soloists and get to know the young artists in the Adler Fellowship Program and the Maryland Opera Program. So when did you get brave enough to approach a singer with a song? Um, it started with uh, a young Adler Fellow, a good friend of mine named Kristen Clayton, mm-hmm. who I've written a lot of music for. Um, and she, <laughs> I just decided I had to be brave, and I needed to, like, because it was bursting inside of me. I just had to get back into writing music, listening to all these great singers. I was, I was, I was dying. And one, one day she, she was running up the stairs and 
um, I said, oh, and Kristen, someday I'd love to show you some of my songs. I, I write songs, too. And she turned around to me as she fled up the stairs <laughs> and said, oh, do you do that? <laughs> and ran away as fast as she could. I mean, you can imagine the thinking, oh, good, the PR guy writes songs. Yay. So, so uh, anyway, but then actually the first, she was very kind, and that gave me the courage to actually approach someone else who was a major singer, uh, Frederica von Stada, mm. who had become a great friend of mine through the work that I did at the opera. And then I got brave enough to write some folk song arrangements for her because she's so generous and gregarious and friendly and warm. And really, uh, she served, she's a role model of mine in, mm-hmm. in, in, in many ways. And um, so I got brave enough to present her with some songs the opening night of The Dangerous Liaisons. Mm. And at the first intermission I went back to check on her and she was playing through them and she said she said I really want to come in the next show and let's read through these together and you know um, and so I did I came in early of course and I'm playing them and she's reading leaning over my shoulder you know (laughs) and I'm thinking well this is about as good as it's ever going to get you know (laughs) Frederica von Stada in her prime singing these arrangements of mine at the opera house and then I, we stopped, and she goes, these are really beautiful. Would you like to give a concert together sometime? And I oh. said, let me check my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can make that happen. And, and she, was, she meant it, and she made a, a demo tape for me for a mm. competition, and she was incredibly generous, mm. as she is with uh, young people everywhere. It's so important to have mentors in, oh. in this particular business. Well, and it? also someone who just goes, you know what, I believe in you. Yeah. I want to give you a chance. Right. And um, I think that's why I make it a priority to teach and mentor other mm-hmm. composers and young singers and pianists because people have always been so generous to me. But moving from writing a song yeah. to writing an opera yeah. is a whole other thing. How did that begin? It, um how did that begin? I, was, I started writing not only for Flicka, but also for some other unknown singers around that time. Renee Fleming, <laughs> Bryn Terfel, Sylvia McNair, Jennifer Larmore, Don Upshaw. They, they were all people who had been coming to the PR office to look at what interviews or look at their bio file that we were sending out to the press suddenly were coming to see if I had a song that they could sing. It was the most amazing time. Uh, I was like, no one could believe it, least of well, all Lavi Mansouri, the general director. Yeah, and you, but you had, the, you had the luck to be at San Francisco Opera yeah. where they had that quality it, of singer coming in, in into town. But who knew that those singers were looking for new songs? Yeah. That was the surprise to me with the wealth and richness of the uh, vocal literature, the number of composers who have written songs through history, that they were looking for something specific, personal, and unique that they could inhabit and convey something of their experience as a 20th, now 21st century, but back then it was still the 20th, it was the 1900s people, Um, uh, you know, that they could convey something of their era and their experience in that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just a remarkable time. And they... um, they, were, they started singing them all over the world. I won a competition with G. Shermer, an art song competition, and they started publishing my work. 
And this is all happening while I'm writing press releases. And uh, so one day the, the general director said, Latvia Mansouri said to me, you know, have you ever thought about writing an opera? You're writing all these songs. And I was like, no, I've never thought about writing an opera. It just seemed, I'd been to lots of operas by then, and it just seemed so massive. Like, so that's true. You, you had never really considered it. No. I always thought, I w- you know, when I was a teenager, I thought I would write musicals, maybe, mm-hmm. um, which is an entirely different thing yeah. than thinking of writing an opera. Um, and I thought about different, you know, I tried writing film scores, I tried chamber music and symphonic, and then I stopped writing. And so now I was back, and I was out of an academic environment, too. And I was also in a, in a situation where it felt like there was limitless possibility um, with these singers suddenly asking for new songs, with, um, you know, Latvi commissioning new operas, with um, suddenly this interest by American singers to do new work. You know, 20 years earlier, it was very unusual Mm -hmm. to find an American singer that would take on uh, a new role in an American opera or even an American art song. The thing was to go and do your Schumann and your Bellini and your, you know, Wolf and your Brahms and and you sang the traditional stuff. So this was a a time of change. Um, And so he... I thought he was just, you know, making conversation at that point. But the next day, he invited me into his office, and I was there with my pen and paper to (laughs) write the next press release. And he said, well, put that away. I want to talk about your opera for us. Um, We have an opening in the 2000-2001 season, and um, I want to send you to New York to meet Terrence McNally. I've been trying to get him to write a libretto for a long time. And <laughs> I've been trying to get him to write a libretto for a long time. I think you two might hit it off. So why don't you go to New York and, you know, see... see and I was like, who are you talking to? <laughs> when you think that this is the general director of the San Francisco Opera, he could talk to anyone of hundreds, if not thousands, of composers who would leap at that opportunity... But he was a real impresario. And mm, yeah, the thing that I came absolutely. to appreciate about him is that he was like the cap. I called him the captain of possibility. Mm. He was like the captain of this massive ship. And because of his personality and his passion, he could bring anyone along. Mm. He would convince people to go along on this venture. And as a result, he gave Anna Trebko her American premiere. He gave Valery Gergiev his American premiere. He did this whole Russian series where he did The Fiery Angel, Ruslan and Ludmila, you know, all of these things that you would never get a chance to see yeah. otherwise. And they were enormously successful. Mm. And he had commissioned the uh, Streetcar Named Desire that Andre Previn was, was writing. And so now he, he, he asked me to write, he, to go meet Terence and to maybe write a comedy for the year 2000. And so imagine Lafayette's surprise when we told him, well, we've decided what we want to write, Dead Man Walking. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, hearing the name Terrence McNally, if if you're like me, you probably had the Lisbon Traviata going through your head, master class, love, valor, compassion. I mean, it's a major... Broadway oh, yeah. playwright. Well, who had also written the books for Ragtime, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and later The Full Monty, and, right. you know, I mean, just a, a real genius of the theater. Well, now, this gives us a good, uh, a good place to start talking mm-hmm. about Great Scott, because mm-hmm. now you had, you had a, a great success with Dead Man Walking, which is it went now well. being performed yes. <laughs> very well, <laughs> being performed throughout the world, yeah. but especially, I mean, it's, I think it's being recognized as a seminal American work mm-hmm. of the 21st century, which is phenomenal. It's great. Um, I accept. But Terrence, Mc- <laughs> Terrence McNally, um, 
you didn't write another opera with him as, or, or, or he didn't write another libretto for you until Great Scott comes along. So he wrote a short libretto for a piece that we wrote called At the Statue of Venus, which is a 22-minute scene for soprano and piano. Ah. Okay. Uh, that we wrote for the opening of the new opera house in Denver. So back it's not in like you lost touch. No, no, we were in touch, and actually, every opera that I've written has come from a Terence McNally idea. Mm. Dead Man Walking was his idea. The End of the Affair was his idea. He didn't write the libretto for that. Um, three Decembers, my three-character opera, uh, was based on a short script that he wrote. Mm. Moby Dick was his idea, and he was going to write the libretto for Moby Dick, but he had to withdraw for personal reasons. Um, very close to the beginning of that process. And uh, so he, he had been, we had been looking for an opportunity to write something. And so when the Dallas Opera had premiered Moby Dick and it had gone well, um, <laughs> they asked right away if I would come back and write another piece. And I thought, well, this is the chance to work with Terrence. And he just sort of leapt at that opportunity. Now, this is a, um, unlike Moby Dick, mm-hmm. Dead Man Walking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's totally original. Yes. It just came out of the air, right? So <laughs> came from how, somewhere. <laughs> how did that come about? Because that's actually rather unusual oh, today. Oh, it's very brave. It's yeah. extremely bold when you think that most uh, operas, musicals, are based on something that you know. And historically, that's true. If you look back to the beginnings of opera. Some other property, right. even mythology. A, myth, or, a yeah. myth, a legend. And then it was plays. Then it was novels. I mean, even Madame Butterfly was based on a newspaper serial, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Grimes based on legend. You know, it's, it's always based on something that the audience knows. There are very few examples historically of successful operas that were based on original stories. I think uh, um, Ariadne or um, Auf Naxos mm-hmm. or um, Rosenkavalier mm-hmm. is probably an original story. Um, uh, Cosi, I think, was an original story. Yeah, yeah that's know? true. Yeah. Cosi Fantute. So, you know, they're, but they're very, very few. And I always look for a project that's going to really terrify me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, Dead Man Walking. Oh, piece of cake. You know, <laughs> Moby Dick, piece of cake. No, these are projects that are really scary and daunting, where um, I, I know I feel music right away, but I don't know how I'm going to do that. And that's an exciting place for an artist to be, is I think I can do that. I don't know how I'm going to do that. Um, and so when Terrence first uh, suggested a story, he wanted to write an opera based on... He wanted to write a modern-day Medea mm. based on the Susan Smith story of you know, the woman that put her kids in the car. And like, I was like, oh my God. Terrence, I don't want to write that. I was <laughs> like, I don't want to live there for three years. You know, an oh. opera's going to take three to four years of your life to write. I don't... I don't want to try to convince an audience I don't, or an opera board. I think it's going to be a really uphill battle with that one. And I said, what about something completely the opposite? What about something original that has great heart, that has the opportunity for great laughter? I would love to write something that makes an audience laugh and then makes them cry in the mm-hmm. next moment. Um, and his eyes started to sparkle. And I thought, <laughs> he's got an idea of what we're talking about. And... Um, and lo and behold, very shortly after that, he started this invention um, that became Great Scott. I remember you saying in an interview, um, dealing with Moby Dick when you were last here, that before you could set a libretto or a, a story, a book, mm-hmm. or a libretto as an opera, it had to sing. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, it has to sing to me. I mean, I, I, I'm a, what I found out writing 
uh, Dead Man Walking, which was remarkably not hard to write, um, is that I am a theater guy. You know, I'm primarily a theater composer, which means I like the idea of the stage. I think in three dimensions with people moving around. I think of language. I think of interaction and conflict and how that, uh, how that manifests itself through music. Mm -hmm. um, what are the things that, can, that the music can tell you on the stage that you don't need the libretto for? What are the things that you need the libretto for? Um, so it was, uh, 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 in, in that it has to sing to me, a libretto really isn't ready until it sings to me. Um, that's one of the librettist's primary job, mm -hmm. is not only to, uh, to set up the structure and the characters so that those lines are clear, so that we know where we are, we know who these people are, we know what's happening, we know what the interactions between them are, but that it leaves room for music and that the language and the situations and the, and the arc of the piece, when I pick it up and read it, suddenly I am inspired to write music. Mm. Um, and that's the librettist's job, is to make that happen. And that's, that's a daunting thing. Um, you know, when you think of playwrights, they want to be the primary, you know, dramatist. Um, poets, it's, it's about language. It's not about action on the stage as much, right? It's about the beauty of the language itself um, and, the, and the spirit and emotion behind it. If you think of a lyricist, that's a very different thing, too. If you think of a screenwriter, that's a very different thing, too. So someone who writes a libretto has to have a combination of all these skills, a sense of poetry between uh, language and motion, but also the instincts of a playwright. But then they have to subsume all of that to the vision of a composer mm. because the music has got to lead. Uh, my goal always when I write an opera uh, is that if you couldn't understand a single word of the libretto, you would still know emotionally what's going on. If you think about going to a great Verdi, Puccini, Mozart opera, you know, there's, we don't understand every single word unless you speak fluent Italian or German or whatever the opera it, language the opera is in. But if the music is, can transport you, you know, you don't need to understand every word mm -hmm. to know what's going on emotionally because that's, what op we, yeah. that's why we go to the opera. Now, we imagine Mozart and Lorenzo da Ponte in a cafe every day in Vienna. Do we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking of that. Trading, <laughs> trading um, ideas and, uh, for story and, yeah. you know, Mozart looking at the, you know, the language and the libretto. Uh -huh. um, and, and no letters were exchanged between them because they mm -hmm. worked very closely in the same city, in right. the same neighborhood. Right. Um, on the other hand, von Hofmannsthal and Strauss, we probably know too much yeah. about their relationship, more than we, we yeah. ever want to know. How did you work together? Was there, in this 21st century and, and uh, electronic age, did you do a lot of emailing back and forth? Was there Skyping? What was most successful for you? Um, Actually being face-to-face? -face? Yeah, being in the room together, there's no substitute for that. And, and with any enterprise, whether it's artistic or business, it's all about the people that you work with. It's all about the people in the room. And with something like an opera, you're working on it for three or four years. So, A, you have to like working together, respect each other, enjoy each other, respect each other's ideas, agree to disagree, mm -hmm. you know, and to move forward and to challenge each other so that, you know, I make his work better, he, he makes my work better. Um, but being in the room together at the beginning is, 
is key. Yeah. And, uh, and checking in throughout. But then we each need our privacy, so phone calls are helpful, uh, emails very helpful, um, but finding the time to be together is, is everything. I don't think our audiences really know um, how much of a collaboration creating an opera mm. really is. Mm. Let's talk about the workshop process first. Mm. Let's assume you and Terrence have worked very, very hard at creating this piece, and it comes to what is the workshop process and what happens during that? What kind of decisions do you have well, to make even, during it? Well, even before that, um, you know, Terrence writes, well, first of all, before, before either of us can do anything, we have to have a story. Before there's, you know, everyone always says, what's first, the words or the music? The story is first, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? What's it about? What's going to happen? Who are these people? Why do we care, you know? Uh, why is it meaningful to have... Uh, this work come to life on the stage. And then if you have that, those things in place, suddenly words can emerge and musical ideas can emerge for me. A lot of what I write for the characters is going to be initially based not only on my perception of them dramatically, but also the words that they use and how I set those words, um, the rhythmic structure of the language. I mean, that's why I think American opera sounds American, because it's using American English, right? Um, uh, French opera sounds French because of the language and the, and the rhythms of the language, the nuances of the language. Italian opera sounds Italian because of, this, because of that same reason, because of the language. So I base a lot of that on the language that he gives me, but then uh, maybe I'm writing something and I have an idea and none of the language is working. So I start writing in my own words or um, writing in dummy words for the moment and then I check it with him. And then we go back and forth. He rewrites, I rewrite, we go back and forth. You had permission to do that from him? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that was okay to Oh, it has to be words, okay. Edit and... Oh, it has to be okay. That has to be clear right mm-hmm. from the start. I can't work with someone who's not willing to be flexible with right. language. The same way I have to be flexible to their idea if they say, you know what, I think we can do better, mm-hmm. you know, or we can make, we can make an improvement here. Um, you know, That's I'm not, really refreshing to know. I'm not That's... telling them how to write, but I'm just saying, this isn't working. I need something different. Yeah. Um, and so then the workshop process, you know, because all of that is abstract. You know, it's me thinking, this sounds great. It's him thinking, that sounds great. In the workshop, we actually have singers learn it, and it comes off the page so that we can see, is it actually working? And truthfully, if it's working with singers, just reading off of music, sitting in metal chairs, reading off of scores with a piano, and it's already working, you're in good shape. If it's not working in that form, we have work to do, Mm -hmm. you know? But that's the information you learn. It's a constant process of learning what's working, what's not working, what's clear, what's, you know, what could be better, you know? And there's always something in those stages that could be better. So you made changes after the oh, workshop. Oh, make lots of changes during and after the workshop because you learn so much. And, you know, it's one thing when it's based on something that exists, like Moby Dick, like Dead Man Walking. Um, with, with an original story, this is the ultimate high wire act. There is no mm-hmm. net. You cannot fall back on the characters or the stories. You cannot go back to the book to figure out where did you go wrong or what should come next. You have to invent it. So every time we'd do a workshop, we'd be learning about the characters and the story. Oh, now this is becoming clear. So we can take that a little further. Or we go and we find out this character is way too overdeveloped. So we need to cut a lot of their music, you know, um, and make changes. So that's, that's the process. And it's... Uh, alternately maddening and inspiring and an enormous amount of work. I've never worked so hard on a piece as I have Great Scott, and mm. I think because it was an original story. And it demanded also 
Terence challenged me with an enormous range of musical styles and characters, um, more than anything I'd ever encountered. I'd say it's, it doesn't sound like it, but it's easily my most complex score. Is it well. still exciting to hear a singer, um, I mean, other people on a stage or in a workshop play your music? Oh, Thrilling. For the, the first time. Thrilling and terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly terrifying at first because you have to remember the creative process is very, very private. I mean, at first, it's just me and the librettist. And as you move forward, you start to have to let it go and other people get involved. One of my favorite quotes is when Gene Shear and I were working on Moby Dick, we got into the rehearsal process and he says, Jake, I love our piece. I'm so proud of what we did. I wish we didn't have to do it with people. <laughs> he said they're going to have opinions they're going to tell us what they think <laughs> you know because in our little cocoon it is all perfect you know so you have to start to let it go and um, you just hope that you got it right you yeah. know I mean based on lots of experience and working very very hard all the time and constantly trying to write something fresh and challenging and inspiring in my imagination um, and meaningful, most of all, meaningful. Um, you hope that you got it on the page right, but that's what you learn. Yeah. Now, the stage director, Jack O'Brien, yes. um, directed this production and, yeah. is, and will be coming to San Diego to yeah. direct uh, our production. Love him. Um, <laughs> now, when did he join the process? Because now I'm understanding from yeah. you and other composers that the stage directors are being invited in a lot earlier oh, than yeah. they no, were Jack before. Jack was involved right from the beginning, and... Um, uh, Terrence and I, once we'd figured out what the story was and we were thinking of who was going to direct this piece, immediately thought Jack would be exactly the right person for it because it is such a theater story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, it's got a range of color and character that was just right for him. And so we had dinner with him and told him about it. And he goes, yeah, I'm the right person for this piece. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then he was involved with every single workshop and uh-huh. I felt free to call him when I had a question that I didn't think Terrence could necessarily answer mm-hmm. because I needed perspective. And that's the other thing you gain uh, through people. You know, when you're working with gifted people, and that's your team, and they're all focused on the actual work. They're not there to, to satisfy their own ego. They're really there to make this the best it can possibly be. And so they're there for the work. You're there for the work. Then you can get things done. And what they bring is perspective because it's very easy creatively to get way too close to your own work mm-hmm. and to lose perspective. And you've got to remember, too, with a new opera, which is so massive, so many notes. <laughs> where, I mean, how many notes could there possibly be? We used them all, okay? <laughs> there are none left. Um, we, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you know music, this, like Great Scott and Moby Dick are each 5,000 measures of music, okay? Now... On a, on a piano score, that's a piano score plus the voices and chorus. But once you orchestrate it, you're talking about well over 100 people, 120 people, that I'm telling them through the score what to do every single moment. What dynamic, what color, what combination of colors, what instruments. I mean, it's really daunting. So mm-hmm. to have the perspective of friendly ears and eyes from the beginning um, means we can get a lot done on the front end because opening night, that piece is shot out of a cannon, <laughs> you know, right at the audience and at the creative team because it's not just the first time you're hearing it, it's really the first time we're hearing it. You know, we don't get previews like in Broadway shows where we can change things every day and hear them go into the show that night. With an opera, 
opening night is it. You know, we get a final dress rehearsal usually where there might be a small invited audience and you're getting a sense of the temperature from that. But that's two days before opening. Mm. There's really not much you can do. Um, So opening night is when the creative team really learns what the piece is. Um, And from there, luckily, hopefully, if we have a second production, we can make changes from that. Now, you just told me backstage, you you went to all the performances in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you learned a lot from watching five five performances, five different audiences uh, react to the piece. Um, Overall, what was that experience like? And then a, a more detailed question, did you change anything based on the audience's reaction to various things? Um... First of all, it's miraculous. Every <laughs> the fact that opera can happen at that level in our world today is miraculous. And it happens sheerly through passion and, and love. I mean, when you think about it, there is no logical reason why we should be doing opera <laughs> at that scale this day and age. It doesn't make money, you know? And people in our world, they measure success by does it make money, you know? Yeah. It, opera doesn't make money. It, you can't extend the run. It never has. Right. You can't extend the run. It's a very finite period. You're not going to be able to say if it's a hit, whatever that means, that you're going to extend it another week. You can't do that. Um, so it's, we do it because of the passion for it, the, the affection for it, the, the, the way it inspires and moves us. So it's, every time I'm just overwhelmed at the miracle that it all comes together and happens. Mm. That's why the story of what happened in San Diego is so completely inspiring um, and why it's very appropriate for this particular composition, which I hope we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but from uh, the final dress rehearsals through all of the performances, what was really exciting was A, I've never heard an audience laugh that much in my life. I've rarely heard them laugh that much in a funny play or musical, much less in the opera house. You know how usually in the opera house, the most you get is, oh, that's so funny. Um, (laughs) Right? (laughs) But to hear people literally screaming with laughter and bursting into applause. A, that meant people were engaged, they were connected, they were really paying attention, they were really listening. And then the quiet places where there were actual tears and I would see people shaking. And there was a moment at the end, there's a final quartet where there's this just, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever written, I believe, in, in my, in, to my thinking, um, this final quartet. And it is, basically, it summarizes what the whole journey has been about. And I can't, it gets me uh, emotional thinking about it because the number of times, I observe the audience sometimes more than I observe the piece because I do want to see what's going on. And to see people reaching over to grab someone's hand Mm. at that moment. And several people told me they were sitting next to a total stranger who reached over and grabbed their hand because they just needed to connect with someone in that Mm. moment. That to me, is a good sign. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) But we did learn a lot. Um, I learned that uh, some things were going on too long, that we had miscalculated a couple of dramaturgical things. So I made about 15 minutes of cuts Mm -hmm. um, afterwards. I mean, it just closed not even a month ago. Right. And we already have a new score that has uh, all these new cuts and some language changes that Terrence wanted to make. 
Um, some are very invisible cuts, little things that from interludes and things that people won't notice. Some are quite substantial changes. Um, but again, those are all only things you can learn in the, yeah, in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I, it'll be interesting for me because I, I had the opportunity to mm-hmm. see it, uh, the second performance, mm-hmm. um, and, and enjoyed yeah. immensely. But to see yeah. how it has changed and how it shapes. And of course, every yeah. time you do... Don Giovanni or yeah. Cozy, you know, as old as those pieces are, every time we do it, it's going to be different. Right. And sometimes we insert involved. cuts, you know, in those pieces and, or, you know, we open the, up the cuts or whatever. Yeah. But uh, um, there will be a recording, a live recording of the entire original work, which I'm very happy about because the cast was so extraordinary and it was just a, a dream to Is do it Is there any possible chance that it'll come out before our production? We're hoping, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Um, Great Scott is an opera within an opera. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the title of the opera within the opera. It's Rosa Dolorosa Filia di Pompei. Right. Daughter of Pompeii. Daughter of Pompeii. <laughs> and... Um, you know, hopefully you had a chance to read the, the synopsis on the back of your program um, that this is an opera company in trouble mm-hmm. and Arden Scott, this celebrated mezzo, is, has brought this piece. She discovered this opera, Rosa Dolorosa, um, when she was in St. Petersburg. It was a dusty old score that they'd found at the back of a drawer in a cabinet. And as far as anyone knew, it had never been performed. It was by a forgotten composer named Vittorio Bazzetti. And very specifically written in 1834. I thought that was very interesting. (laughs) And, um, well, Terence likes to be specific. (laughs) And, um, but what he did, you know, Terence is such a brilliant man of the theater. What he did by placing it in, first of all, setting it in a theater of a company that is in trouble, an American opera company that's in trouble, as many of them are or have been. Um, And instead of coming with a new opera or with a famous classic, she's chosen to bring something that's never been performed that's 200 years old. And the whole question, a lot, one of the central questions throughout the whole opera is, does any of this matter? Does it matter to do a 200-year-old piece? Is there merit in doing that? and in doing a piece that was never performed? Is there merit in doing a new piece? Is there merit in doing Rigoletto again? You know? Uh, the other thing that happens is there's a young, eager soprano who's part of the company, Tatiana Baxt. She's from... And she's eager. She's going to make it no matter what. <laughs> and she is not going back to Russia. And, uh, and she wants everything that Arden Scott has. And she manages to get herself singing the national anthem at the Super Bowl, which is going on the same night as the premiere of the 200-year-old <laughs> opera. So you have this juxtaposition of old and new. You have Arden Scott, who's sacrificed everything for her career to have the career and life that she does. And here's this young, gifted singer who winds up singing in front of 110 million people on TV, who now has a career beyond what Arden Scott could ever dream of, and now is going to get offered all the roles that would have gone to Arden. And that's a reality in the world, too. Sure. And I think that's the essence of the piece is the sacrifices and choices we make for dreams. And I think anybody can relate to that, whether it's a family that you dream of or a career or a journey, something that you've dreamed of, and maybe you're on your way and suddenly you think about the choices and the sacrifices you made along the way and you think, wow, did I do the right thing? 
Did I, did I make the right choices? Was that all worth it? And I think everyone can relate to that story, whether you're in the theater or not. Mm-hmm. And that's why th- that it being in San Diego yeah, means so much. I was so just going to say, it speaks to us yes. in, a, in a huge way yeah. because of what we've been through. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it was, it, I like to think it was serendipity, but I think it was perhaps divinely inspired mm-hmm. that <laughs> the opera that we were performing at the time of the crisis was Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of impossible dreams. Yes. Um, let's talk about the music. C- yeah. Can we move to the piano? Sure. I know that the, uh, the overture is really stunning, and as most overtures do, it introduces a lot of the themes that you're going to use throughout the piece. Do you yes. want to talk about the themes and then... Sure, sure. Well, um, Terrence always gives me a wonderful setup, and of course the thing that was challenging about this piece is that um, I had to write a bel canto opera within the opera, so I had to create that style and sound world. There's the football game going on across town, so I had to create some kind of a fight song in reference to that. Um, there's the craziness of the world that's going on now. There's a, there's a ghost story here, too, because the ghost of the composer appears to Arden Scott in the second act. Um, and interestingly enough, he doesn't tell her she should only sing the music of the past. He encourages her to sing the music of the future and to be brave and stop playing it safe which I think is very interesting. He said, you have to remember the singers of my time, he said, they were singing new music and they were terrified too. And it's a very moving scene uh, between the two of them. So I needed to set up all of those things. The big challenge was to find a musical sphere in which all those different styles could cohabitate and still make sense. (laughs) Um, So the, the, the bel canto theme that I have is... is a little bit heroic and a little wistful at the same time. And the, the um, fight song that I found <laughs> <laughs> is kind of the reverse of it. Um, and it, it, it just goes... Sound familiar? (laughs) Here's the fight song. Go, 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 right? (laughs) And the team that they're cheering for is the the Grizzlies. So there's a go, Grizzlies, go, go, go all through this. But but so we have, and then we have, so we have one's up and one's down. And so those were very connected. There's the craziness of of backstage, which is all... So there's all this craziness too, but you'll hear um, you'll hear a, a lot of playing around with the, those two things. The, uh, the job of an overture, of course, is to welcome you into the musical world of the piece, the pace of the piece, what you're going to hear, what's going on, to give you a flavor of it. So then you're open to what's going to happen next. Um, when the overture is basically over. There's a return to the ghostly music, and suddenly, as the curtain is going up, you see the people on stage rehearsing Rosa Dolorosa. And the, the, the conductor is at the piano playing the overture, which sounds surprisingly like a Rossini overture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you'll hear that at the very end of this. But that's when the curtain's going up. Um, I thought of, did anyone else grow up watching Warner Brothers cartoons and, you know, <laughs> The Rabbit of Seville, you know, those kind of things. You know, that was my introduction to opera, you know. They said, 
I saw a meme one time that said, Bugs Bunny, everyone's introduction to opera and drag queens. Because, you know, <laughs> Bugs Bunny was always putting on women's clothes. It was like, anyway. <laughs> so anyway, this is the, this is the overture to um, Great Scott.
Thank you. Play ball. That was fun. That was fun. I, I, I remember having just as much fun listening to it in the theater. This is black and white, of course. Oh, yeah, the with the full orchestra. Is just major. It, it's really major. There's even a police whistle in there. Yeah. I, I'm not I kidding. Didn't, I didn't expect the very beginning of the piece to be so... Um, Misty, kind mm-hmm. of impressionistic, very atmospheric. It drew me in immediately, oh, but it was um, well. I, I, thought, I also where, where's this going? This is a very you know. I mean, because there's a lot of laughter in it, um, people might want to belittle it or think less of it. I mean, people are very people are much more critical generally of something that's got humor in it than they are of a drama. They're mm. much more forgiving with drama, <laughs> you know. We'll believe the woman coughing and dying for 20 minutes on the stage. But, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, um, I wanted, this is an enormously serious piece um, about things that matter to us very, very much. I mean, it is about things that matter, whether we do matter or not, those big questions. Right. And to start it with that sense of connecting with the past of old and new, of sounds that are surprising in the, in the orchestration of that, the... It, the piano isn't actually playing. It's a clarinet and strings sustaining, but the piano, uh, the pianist strums the strings inside every now and then as though something's been thrown mm. uh, across those strings. Um, but it's a, it's a very serious piece about big things and many, many different uh, plot lines and stories. And uh, it was important to me to draw that world and, and set that tone right from mm. the start. But it, it works. Well, thank it's you. It's beautiful. Thank beautiful. you. We're coming almost to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to end with a word association game. Oh. <laughs> now, I'm going to give you the name of a composer okay. or an opera-related rela- opera <laughs> word or phrase. I live in mortal fear of things <laughs> like this. <laughs> I know you told me that okay. before oh, in relation to something, okay. and I, I just have to do this. But I want to ask you to respond with the first <laughs> thing that comes to your mind, one word or, or a short phrase. I'll okay. give you that. I'll okay. give you that. Okay. Soprano. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> You're in big trouble. <laughs> All right. That Tw- wasn't the answer. 20th, 20th century opera. Um, grateful. Puccini. Luscious. Mm. El canto. Ravishing. <laughs> Lafi Mansuri. Oh. Genius, leader, captain, <laughs> courageous, impresario, you know. Wozzeck. Oh, bold, challenging, beautiful, mm. brilliant, heart wrenching. Carlisle Floyd. Oh, hero. Mm. Yeah. You know, he's 90 this year and is premiering mm-hmm. a new opera. Yes, it's that he just wrote. Brilliant. Uh, at, at the Houston Grand Opera, Prince of Players, end of, end of March. Richard Wagner. Oh. <laughs> I don't know that I have words. I mean, okay, this I have to, I can't just answer one word because, you know, 
Wagner is the exception to sort of every rule, uh. you know? I mean, he just really created his own world and his own language. And I, it took me a long time to get to that world. Some people get to it much quicker. It took me a very long time. I resisted. And the thing with Wagner is you can't resist. You have to give into it and mm. just let it pour over you mm-hmm. like honey. Yep, yep. <laughs> what you're reading right now. Mm-hmm. What am I reading? Oh, I just finished reading that, you know, the Millennium series that was The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and I just read the new one that was written by a different author. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Thank I you. I enjoyed it, but... Eh. <laughs> um, and then right before that, I read David McCullough's book about the Wright brothers, mm-hmm. that new book. It's just sensational, mm-hmm. but anything he writes is sensational. Yeah, yeah. What are you listening to right now? Oh, my next opera. Oh. <gasps> People always ask, don't you listen to music in the car? Oh, God, no, 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 no. (laughs) Especially when I'm really immersed in writing a new piece. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I have to be very true to that new language. So Mm -hmm. it's, I'm writing an opera based on It's a Wonderful Life that opens in a year um, for the Houston Grand Opera. And um, so that's all that's in my head right now. Well, you know, you answered my last question because I was going to ask you, What's next? And that's what's next. That's what's next. (laughs) And then two operas beyond that, which, you know, I just, uh, I cannot believe I was so fortunate to have this life and this career in in music. Um, And it's such an honor and privilege and thrill um, that I I just don't want to repeat myself and uh, and just give something that I've already given. I want to challenge myself to give something fresh every single time and uh, because I think the audience deserves it and I think the art form deserves it. It's a remarkable time mm. in, in, this, in this country for, for new opera. When Dead Man Walking was premiered 15 years ago in, in 2000 in San Francisco, it was one of maybe three new operas. This year in um, uh, North America, so the U.S. and Canada, there were 45 mm. world premieres. Mm. In the, isn't that remarkable? It's amazing. And also the courage of this company in San Diego to overcome what the obstacle that was thrown its way and and with the kind of support, the rally to save the company and keep it going forward and then in that season to include a new American opera, I think is such a big statement. And I'm just so, so proud to be part of it and so grateful to be here and to be back after Moby Dick with something completely different, <laughs> um, but equally exciting and another exciting American story uh, of our time. Well, you know what I'd love to do before you go? I'd love to play you music from one of the Belcanto pieces that's in. And it's actually the entrance aria for, um, for Arden Scott. And... Um, It was also my way of paying tribute to Chopin, who was one of the most important composers I had growing up as a a kid and a teen. And I always wondered where all that filigree came from Chopin. But if you, he went to the opera and he was living in the golden age of bel canto, hearing the greatest singers in the world in Paris. And that, when you listen to that music and you listen to Chopin, it all makes sense. So to do the opposite, be writing a bel canto opera, and pay homage to Chopin a little bit. Anyway, this is the entrance aria for Arden Scott. She is the character um, Rosa Dolorosa at this time, and she is a slave to the Empress Agrippina, and she enters singing a prayer to Vesuvius, and I'm not going to tell you any more about it because I want you to come see the opera, but uh, I'm just going to play this little tune for you, and can we close that way? Yeah. Okay, great.
Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That's Thank great. You it's a good, good. good job. Good. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.